The parent is the, uh, is the teacher. Last week, or the last several weeks, we've been talking about the parent as the disciplinarian. And we've moved into a section to talk about the parent as the, as the teacher. And, uh, you know, as we, as we look into the parent as the teacher, um, it just occurred to me that one of my, uh, one of my friends, a good friend, quite a long time, he owns a business, and he's got a lot of uh, financial assets and resources available to him. And he's got several children. And uh, one of the things that I, I've seen him do most recently was to, uh, there was a year he said it was going to be a year of travel. And he was going to set a year of travel, and, and each month would come with a new trip to a new place to stir on relationships. And it just, that coupled with a couple of other things that I saw going on, it just made me wonder what pattern and what standard are you setting for your children in the future if there are the financial resources available to have a trip every month? Now, you can do your own thing with your own money, and that's all fine and good. But at the end of the day, we want to be able to scrutinize even our own disposition with regard to our habits and patterns and, and ask the question, are we setting ourselves up, are we setting our kids up for failure or success? What we teach them, is it something that they will hang on to? Is it something that's reproducible? And I was just thinking about that with regard to a trip every month over the course of a year. And where you might have the availability to do that, does that mean that when your nine-year-old grows up to 25 or 30 or 40 and is not able to do that, will they feel a sense of failure? Are the things that you're doing now, are they lending themselves to success in the future? And so I just, I I have reservations about some of the things that I personally have done, but things that I've also seen other friends do in the way of teaching and training their kids, setting expectations or marks that you're going to have a hard time asking someone to repeat that. And so I think what we're going to look at tonight in, in the way of how parents teach and, and what parents teach, what we're looking at is the things that are going to be able to be most reproducible, the things that are necessary expectations of behavior of, of parents and the things that are right expectations for parents. So hopefully everybody's got one of these sheets. I'm just going to walk through it a little bit. and We'll, we'll start with kind of a recap of, of where we've been over the course of the past several weeks. I want to draw your attention to the goal of biblical parenting And the goal is to be a faithful instrument in the hands of God for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. Actively. Why actively? Because it's not something we do passively. So we have to step into this. Why would we step into this? Because we want to be a faithful instrument in God's hands. So actively and faithful instrument go together. And then in God's hands goes with the idea of the content. What are we going to give to the kids? Well, if we're in God's hands, then we need to give him and our children, we need to give them God's principles, biblical principles. You can look next to the motivation of biblical parenting. It's the glory of God. It's not the glory of self. It's not for self-exaltation that we raise our children, nor is it for others. We don't do this for grandparents. We don't do this for our neighbors, nor is it out of fear that we biblically parent our children. So the motivation is critical, and it is the glory of God. Look at that bottom string of, of comments there in, in that list on your, on your notes. Love is setting limits. There is love to be found in limits. And there is great wisdom in rules. Rules are wisdom. If you have those two, if you create those two, if you put those two into place in your house, just like God did in the Garden of Eden, what does that create? It creates a situation of cause and effect because now you're giving that person who, has a, who is a free will agent the opportunity to either select to do the right thing or to choose to do against right and do wrong. And you've created a situation of cause and effect. And now that's going to lend itself to an outcome, right? Consequence. And there's two kinds of consequences we talked about, good and bad. And if you choose the good, hey, great, that's fantastic, glory to God, all things work out well for those who choose to do right. But if you choose wrong, then we need to come with either grace, as we spoke about last week, or truth. And in this context, biblical parenting, truth is the rod, the rod of correction, uh, the rod that will drive the foolishness far from the child. And so hopefully you can kind of see here, this is a flow of thought, those arrows indicating this is what happens next, this is what happens next. And the end of the of that string of thoughts is, is what? What do you see on the page there? That's the, that's the focus of the whole, the whole thing, the whole reason why it was put together. Go back all the way to the garden. What did God want to show? What was he driving toward? What, what perfection, what standard, what ultimate pinnacle was he headed toward? 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when you see a breaking down of relationships and you see uh, opportunity for cause and effect, that always is going to be the case with human life. And it necessitates an equal conversation, not only from the physical world, but into the spiritual world of the gospel. Reconciliation with God. That cause and effect is over here on the natural human side, and that cause and effect is over there on the spiritual side. And it's our opportunity as parents to create that cause and effect situation. It's our obligation to create the cause and effect situation by bringing in limits and rules so that we can offer grace and truth, so that we can present the gospel. That's what we're after. So then we move into um, parenting as the teacher. Before a parent gets started in teaching, there's a few conditions that it's very helpful to remember. Turning your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1. And we first need to come into alignment about the conditions of our children, the disposition of our children. Are we all agreed that children lack understanding? Is that agreed? Are we all agreed that foolishness is bound up in the heart of children? Are we all agreed that they are, that they are those who learn incrementally, little by little, adding day by day, time, over, over a period of time? Are we in agreement with that? Are we also agreed that they can absolutely exercise self-control, listen with the ears that God gave them, receive instructions into the mind that God gave them, and use all the faculties in them to obey what they have received? Are we all in agreement that all those things can happen? Okay, perfect. That's, that's where we want to start. These are the conditions that we find our children in. They are foolish. They can learn. They will obey if they are instructed, if we expect them to do these things. And I think Solomon was trying to say, I know this. This is exactly what I know in Proverbs chapter 1. Listen to the opening verses of, of Proverbs 1, and, which indicate why Solomon wanted to write such profound wisdom to his sons. He says this, Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel, to understand a proverb and a, and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, Solomon's desire here is the same desire shared by biblical parents, you and I. A desire to implant wisdom, justice, and righteousness. A desire that our children might fear the living God who is the source of all knowledge because their entry level into this life meets all those conditions that we previously talked about. A heart filled with foolishness. So we know their condition. And equally, we have an expectation, right? On the one hand, we know their condition. And on the other hand, we have this expectation. We know that they're foolish at heart. And yet, you know that, you, that, you can, that they can receive instruction in wisdom. You, you, we know those two things. You know that they are restless and rambunctious. But you also know that they will sit still and they will obey. And you know that they will receive information that they need for today, but you can't press much further past that. It might not be the day for the conversation about the birds and the bees or about that newspaper article that talked about the transgender pastor. It might not be time to do that. But there's incremental learning that we can head after. So we want to teach them incrementally. And we want to give them what they need as they go along the way in life. Well, this helps, up to, this helps us in setting the stage to know that we can teach them. We must know that we can teach them. We must teach them. Failure to this would be equivalent to the, the man with one talent who was given one talent in Matthew 25, 14. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 25, 14. You know this parable very well. The, the master is taking off on a journey and he calls the slaves out to give them a task. He wants them to watch over his possessions. This is kind of like us parents, right? We are entrusted with God's children. He's given them to us, to some none, to some one, to others four, 
to the most rebellious of us, he's given five or more children. So Jack, you can laugh. <laughs> they're, they're agents of our sanctification. But the, the master in this parable, he expects a return on his property. He expects growth in his assets. He's, he's giving them tokens. You know, will, will, the, will the parent given two children, will they raise their, their children, their two children, up in a home that fears God? And if they raise those two children up in a home that fears God and those two children that they raise up, if they have three children each, do you realize what kind of yield this could have? If all of these children are being raised up in the fear of God, this could yield in just two generations a 300% return. This is the kind of master that we have. He expects this kind of return. But what about the parent given only one child? Isn't this like the, the slave who was given one talent? And what did that parent, what did that parent, or what did that slave do with that one talent? He hid it in the ground. You know, there, there are Christian parents who do this. They hide the, their talent. They hide their opportunity to entrust and grow this asset that God has given them. They hide it by saying things like this. They say, that they don't want to harm little Johnny with rules. They don't want to tell little Susie no because it would harm her mental capacity. They don't want to use the rod of correction. They fear that it's going to, again, hurt their child's soul. They operate with such fear because they believe the lies that the world has told them. What will the master say about these parents? You, you see in that, that parable, in that parable, there's, there's one who operates in fear. What did this one operating in fear, what did he do? It says in verse 18 of, of chapter 25, but he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. He hid his master's money. We're, we're not to be those type of parents who will hide or shirk our responsibility. God has given this asset to us that belongs to him for the explicit purpose that we would yield an increase through this. An increase in us first, in our own sanctification, but that through teaching and training the fear of God, that he could do an incredible work in bringing this child to salvation. How, how sad would it be for the master to say to this parent, who the, the parent returns this child and says, oh, there's the child that you gave me. We're going to be recount, accountable for these children. Just like pastors are accountable for the flock that they serve. We'll be accountable. We'll be held to a standard with this. And the master, I can just see looking to that parent that has done unfaithful work in raising their child and saying, you wicked and lazy parent. So how do you avoid this unfortunate conversation with the master? You teach your children. How do you teach them? That's our question. And that gets into that first point in your notes. How Parents teach kids. How do they teach kids? Four ways. Four ways are these. They teach them by example. Parents teach their kids by example. They teach them by life situations. Life situations. They teach them in question and answer times, the Q&A. And fourth, they teach them in formal instruction. So examples, life situations, question and answer times, and, and formal instructions. We must be reminded of the biblical command in, in Ephesians 6, 4 that we are bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, this, this word instruction is the Greek word nutheteo. It means to literally put into the mind, to put into the mind. And this is what we want to do with our children, to put things into their mind. Are we mindful of the things that we're putting into their mind? We need to slow down and be mindful. Let's take a look at the first way in which we can instruct our children, by example. Who among us has had faithful parents? Probably several, right? Several have had faithful parents. What value is there in their faithfulness? Great value, I would imagine. I can imagine that some of you have been through some dark and weary traveling in your life. And you look back at the faithfulness of those parents and you realize... The Lord did something there that was really gracious. It probably pointed you in the right direction and probably showed you the way out of a lot of trouble. The testimony of our, of our lives is immensely valuable as attested to by faithful parents. It's immensely valuable in, in teaching our children. 
Now, are role models always required by God to produce faith and obedience in, in a rebel? No, no, role models aren't required. Bodie Bauckham is a powerful preacher today. He was raised in a single-parent home. It, it was not a Christian home either. He was raised by his mother. And he didn't get the gospel until he was in college. He had no examples. But he says that no examples are required when it comes to him raising his kids, raising his family, being a father and being a husband. He doesn't need an example, not from his past. He might have examples around him in the church, but the commands that God gives for fathers are right there in the scriptures, whether, you, whether you've had an example or not. And the power of the Holy Spirit is all-consuming to be able to get you to where you need to go. But do we throw away the command to be examples because God's power can override any failure? No, no, of course not. That was whole, Paul's whole argument in Romans 6.1 when he said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall he who died to sin still live in it? So we say, may it never be. Rather, we must be examples. We must be obedient examples, even to the point of death like Christ. In Philippians 2.8, we must understand the power of our example as we live this out before our Christ. And we must set an example of obedience worthy of following so that we can say like Paul says in Philippians 4.9, the things that you have heard and received and learned and seen in me, practice these things and the God of all peace will be with you. He, he was an apostle, but he said this and he was a man. He was a man and he was apostle, he was spirit-filled, but he said this, follow me as I follow Christ. Parents must lead by example. And you do, right? You do. You lead by example, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you lead by example. What kind of example are you? The next way that parents need to know that they teach is in everyday situations. So how do parents teach? They teach, number two, in, in everyday life situations. It's so good to have our kids in our presence at each moment of each day. At first, it helps us to stay on the straight and narrow path of God, right? Because we realize that they're watching us, and then we become accountable to God for them, for what they see us doing. And second, it's good for them to be with us because they learn many things. They, they, learn, they learn our love for them. They learn our love for God. They learn our love for others. Our understanding of righteousness and sovereignty, it all plays out right in front of their face. Our understanding of grace. They get to see our, our confidence and our contentment and our joy. And they also see our weaknesses and our frailty and our fear. So we have them close by us. They're, they're learning all that we have to offer about who God is and the God that we serve just by spending time with them. And life serves us many, many great moments for kids to learn. One time we were in a, a uh, Safeway or Vaughn's parking lot, and uh, this disruption happened about three cars over. And the words that were being used, uh, they sounded like they came right off the USS Antietam. <laughs> Um, they, they were sailor words, I would say. And it was a mom and a custody battle and the father and the transfer that was happening. And it was not pretty. And it was right there in the parking lot. And my kids were listening to everything that was being said, uh, attentively, <laughs> to kind of pull them away and rope them, rope them out of that. You know, I bet you guys have examples. You, you've seen this before. You know, what, what, are, what are some ways, or how did a child learn about God by being with you? Have you seen children learn about God by being with you? by how you respond to those type of situations. Anybody have an example? How, how do children, how have your children learned with you? Anybody? You want to know another way? I'll give you another way. My children learned from me when, when we uh, got the letter from the Master Seminary. And we were sitting at a golf course, and Angela had saved it and brought it. And she wanted to share this family moment. So it's all buried into our minds. The opening of the letter that came from the Master Seminary. We had finished hitting some range balls, and we sat down at this bench that was there at the course, and, and we opened the letter and had no idea what it was going to say. Is this the rejection letter? Is this the acceptance letter? You know, is this the provide more information letter? We had no idea. But we shared that moment with them, the opening of the letter. Something so simple, right? They learn in life situations. Everyday life has moments, one after the next. And shall we shelter our children and give them a sterile experience? Or shall we introduce them to all of life's trials and sorrows, failures, illnesses, the big decision-making and the understanding of 
relational difficulties that exist in our family? Do, do we shelter them or do we allow them in? And, and I'm not saying in in everything, but in with wisdom into the things that they can receive to pull them into every day to see how we handle life's challenges so that they have a context for the decisions we're making and how that relates to the righteousness of God. So you invite them in, into life situations. And this will inevitably create questions. And that's where point number three comes in. We, we take them through how we should teach them by answering questions, through having question and answer periods with our kids. So this is point three in your notes, questions and answers. Because questions are great. Biblical parents love to receive questions from, from their kids. I think it was just a few months back, and, and uh, I have uh, one, of, one of my children was asking me a question that specifically related to Romans chapter 9. And I was able to say, you know what? The question you're asking, which is a fantastic question, was asked to Paul, and he addressed it in Romans 9. And we need to go explore that together. Just awesome to get questions from your kids because every question, regardless of what it is, what does every question go back to? What should every question be driven back to? It should be driven back to the scripture, back to God, certainly. It should be ultimately driven back to the glory of God because that's what we're here and that's what we're after. So maybe a good question is, can you get every question that a child asks back to the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So there's your bridge, right? That's your bridge. That's your bridge verse that gets you from what they're talking about. And whether, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, right? That just bridge that transitions right over to the glory of God. So you can handle anything that they ask. 1 Corinthians 10.31, everything must go through the grid of the glory of God. Consider the, the question expected in Exodus 12. Listen to this. You guys remember the Passover feast? And the whole Passover to begin with, God was going to kill the firstborn of the land in, in Egypt as the, the uh, Israelites were being held in, in slavery and the Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. Except those who would paint their doors blood, all would be killed. All, all the firstborn of that house would be killed. And this is what it says in, in verse 26 of Exodus 12. Listen, listen to this. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt and he smote the Egyptians but, he, but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. You see what I like about this passage is that Moses anticipates the children coming up later on with a great question. Why? Why do we do this? What's this feast all about? Explain this to us. You know, I love that Moses through the Holy Spirit is concerned with what the children will think with what the children observe and, and what they question. We need to be ready as parents to give an answer and be ready to answer with graciousness to those who hear it. Particularly, you need to give an answer that points to Christ and to the, as the Lord and Savior of all. But also, as with every relationship, you need to be a good question asker yourself. You know, friendships hinge on questions. Have you ever had a, a, good, a great friendship without someone who asks questions or is interested in your life? be hard to do that. So we need to ask questions of our children. Learn to be great askers of questions and great... Well, what goes with asking questions? Listener. You need to be a great listener. And the fourth way that parents teach children is through formal instruction. It's incumbent upon us to create a time and a place when our children become our captive audience. Formality helps with this. It can be at a dinner table, a bedside, a favorite chair in the house, sitting on the floor in the living room. But they need a consistency and a repetition in knowing that mom and dad will teach them the truths of Scripture. They must know that you value the Scripture. They need to know that you will teach them truth and not walk away or pass off or give this responsibility to other people. Biblical parents will create a time that's, that's suited for their family where they have their children's ears and they can speak the truth and their kids can receive the instruction. Form, the form of it is not as critical as its function, that it happens. There is no Berean Bible, Gestapo, as far as I know. I've only been here for six months. If you got a Gestapo, you're going to have to tell me. There's no Gestapo traveling house to house with video cameras asking you to show us your child instruction time for Bible time at your house. 
the biblical parent feels the need to give to their child the incredible stewardship entrusted to them and faithfully pass on and transmit that to the next generation. It's the simplest thing. It's discipleship 101, and it happens in our homes. The one to whom Christ gave life, you, will not be silent about the gift that you received. So the biblical parent will make time to speak about the excellencies of Christ. They'll make time, a formal time of instruction. And by the way, suppose, just suppose, that a family has failed with this. Massive failure. Not just in one area, but maybe even suppose in all of these areas. Is all hope lost in this instance? Are those children doomed? Is a life of misery beset on those kids because of the failures of mom and dad? Everybody said, no. Okay. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that? How can failure at any moment be fixed? To what process can you turn to fix failure? To what process? We talked about it before. The process of peace. The process of peace purchased by the blood of Christ. We, we know this very well. The process of peace looks at confession, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, and obedience. Do you realize that as soon as you confess and repent and ask someone for forgiveness, whose, ball, whose court is the ball in now? It's in theirs. You just served. It's them. It's on them to hit the ball now. They have to deal with the condemnation of being so hard-hearted that they wouldn't forgive. See that? What does that then do to a parent who's made a failure? What does that do to the conscience of the parent who was a failure, who just confessed and repented and served the ball over into the court of their child? What does that do to their conscience? Clears the conscience. It takes away the burden of shame and guilt. It says, I'm, I, I'm guilty. I've confessed. I'm guilty. But you know what? My heavenly father, he's paid for this already. He knew I was a sinner and I'm a failure. That's, and, and that's okay. I can confess that and repent that. And how much do your children then need even more to know an example, to see an example of someone who can confess and repent and ask forgiveness for their sins. That's the example they need more than any, right? And then we just say, that's the example I'm going to be today. So there's, there's never failure. As long as you still have life and breath, there's never failure. With Christ, there's only opportunities for success with this. So these are the four ways that we can instruct our children, how we parent them. But next we need to turn to what is the content? What are we going to teach them? So we need to look at what parents teach their kids. So we've got 10 of them here. So we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. The fear of God is number one. You teach your kids the fear of God. We read earlier from Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Biblical parents agree that this is the case. Kids must first know that God exists they must gain an understanding of God, of his magnitude, his power, his all-seeing eye. You know Hebrews 4.13. Do your kids know it? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes to him who, must, who we must give an account. They must have an awe of God, a deep respect of his holiness, of his righteousness. You know, the fear of God, it carries a weight to it. There's a weightiness to this. The weight of it gives us three required responses to the fear of God. These are the three required responses to the fear of God. That your children must know God, continually gathering information about him at every turn. Number two, that they must worship God. The knowledge of God demands a response, and worship is the proper response. And number three, they must please God. Failure to please God is disobedience, and failure to please God eliminates the idea that you know him or worship him. So you must know God, worship God, and please God. That's how you respond to a God that you fear, those three things. Failure to teach this allows every opportunity for your child to become a little kingdom maker, and, and a little kingdom they will make. So you must teach them that God is king, the eternal king. Then we can teach them about what God says, about his commandments, about his words, and about how we are to be in submission to them, which is point number two, submission to authority. All humans are to be in submission to authority of one kind or another. Submission to authority. 
All people are held accountable to somebody. There's not a human who is without accountability. All must give an account for their actions and deeds. And so we show our children and we teach them what it means to be submissive, submissive to authority. And this means that we show them obedience, first to the word of God, our own obedience to the word of God, and next, our obedience to earthbound temporal authorities. And when I say earthbound, temporal, time-bound authorities, can you think of your earthbound, temporal authorities? Husband, give me another one. Boss, elders, thank you, yeah. Policeman, thank you, yeah, that's right. President, our own parents, yeah, there's still a sense of... There's a sense of equality, but there's still a reverence that's offered, authored there. Yeah. So these are the people to whom we must give respect, give obedience, give submission. Um, for years, I, I, I lived without really caring about these authorities or really seeking to know them or really even asking any questions about them because I've been an American my whole life, and I've got my Bible, Jesus, Wife, kids, home, job. I pay my bills and my taxes. What else do I need? And for years, I just kind of dismissed this whole idea of authorities and, and really being subjected to them. I didn't catch the idea that success in my role as a husband and father really depended on how well I submitted to the authorities over me. And I would ask you the question, how well can you submit to the authorities that are over you when you don't even know who they are? when you haven't even given acknowledgement of them. Kind of brutal, huh? Not even given acknowledgement of them, and, and yet you're going to try to be a husband and father? What's going to happen? You see the chain, right? There's a missing link, and you're going to want these kids to be submissive to you and know you and understand their responsibility to you, but you don't even know who's over you and who you're to be submissive to. Didn't really understand Christ was building a church. So you've probably understood about me. I've got a little rebellious streak in me. I do. And, and do you know where it showed up one day? It showed up in the church. Through the mouths of my children. Telling about all the fun that they had at dad's office. Let my boys play in my office one day. They were having quite a bit of fun. They're in the room. I know they'll laugh. It's a funny story. I let him play with a, a bobblehead Obama that was given to me by a customer. My boys, they combined the joy of this toy with the joy of a remote-controlled yellow Lamborghini. Do you think that the bobblehead Obama even stood a chance against a speeding yellow Lamborghini? Next, we got to church on Sunday, and the boys are so quick to tell our friends of the fun that they had at Dad's office on Friday. And it just begs the question... Where does, where does respect for authority begin? Where does respect for authority begin? Are you submissive or, or dismissive? You know, I'm thankful that I was confronted about this at church. I'm thankful that someone talked to me or asked me a question about this um, because it was only a matter of time before my boys could easily make that parallel, that parallel between the idea of dad not knowing that we need to be respectful of the authorities appointed over us so that they would be respectful of me. I needed to show them this so that I could get this. And it was missing. And I'm thankful that someone pointed that out. It's such an important point. You challenge your own authority by not honoring the authority over you. And so we teach our kids to submit to authority. It's a display of the understanding that we have of sovereignty. And it shows our focus, whether that's heaven or earth, whether that's the physical world or the spiritual world. Next, do your, do your kids know what to do when they sin? This is a big deal. Can your kids deal with sin? This is point number three on what we teach our kids. And, and this goes back to the comment that I made before, the process of peace. We really want our kids to know the process of peace. Maybe a first question. Can my children even identify what sin is? Do they even know what sin is? Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Do your kids have a healthy understanding of the hatred of evil? This is what we want for our children, to see sin and to hate sin, and then to know how to remove sin. 
But what if the child is not able to identify sin on their own? And then the parent must help them. You must help them. You must step in if they can't identify it on their own. Proverbs 15.5 Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. And then further in that same chapter, 30, verses 31 and 32, he, who, he whose ears listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise, and he who neglects discipline despises himself. But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Parents must be those who can so clearly draw the line between the fool and the wise man. And we must take that then and we must make them sensitive, our children, make them sensitive to hear our instructions so that they stand a chance to identify their own sin. Second, when the child understands sin, they need to get this. They need to get the process of peace. The God ordained bought with the blood of Christ means of reconciling man to God. We've talked about this before. What is the process of peace? We put it on our hands so we can remember it. The process of peace begins with the little thing that Christians don't do often enough. We confess. We confess our sins, which is to acknowledge what we did. We repent of our sins, which is to say, I don't ever want to do that again. We ask for forgiveness from human agents. We we state God's forgiveness is reconciled, uh, understood in our hearts because God's forgiveness is like an ocean that you just go jump into. And we head toward forgiveness, the high point. Forgiveness, the high point. And then we move on toward, if we're forgiven, we want to restore any relationship. God, how can I make amends for this? Is there something that I need to do for you? We, we restore the relationship at any cost, any personal cost. And then we seek to obey God only continually from then. And do you realize that if you go through this process of peace and you commit yourself to obedience at the end, did you realize that even at the beginning, this whole process is obedience? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the process of peace. They need to know how to cleanse their own hearts and conscience through this process bought by Christ. So first, they must be willing to examine themselves and receive instructions. Second, they need to know the process of peace. And then third, in dealing with sin, third, do your children know how to deal with sin from others? Do they know how to deal with the bully on the playground or the foul-mouthed child in the supermarket? How well do they respond to being sinned against or having a toy taken from them? The Bible has a lot to say about how we handle the sins of others. Consider Joseph and his model, flee and, and run away. What does Paul say about um, being a, a peacemaker? That we're not only to be peacemakers, but we're to return good in the face of evil. What does Jesus say about the Sermon on the Mount? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if they take your, your, your one garment, you give them the jacket also. And if they want to go one mile, you go two. Oh, and if they strike you on this cheek, then turn the other cheek to them. We teach the importance of forgiveness. If someone, if someone outside of us sins against us, we teach how valuable it is in the, in the mind of God and the person of Christ and their message about reconciling enemies. That's what Christ did for us. We teach the importance of forgiveness, which is choosing not to remember. And forgiveness is not using anyone's sin against them. Their sin never comes up again to harm or to gossip or for you to needlessly dwell on the sin of another. Forgiveness lets it go. Luke 17, 3 and 4 talks about how many times we're supposed to forgive. You know, if someone punches you in the face, according to Luke 17, 3 and 4, seven times in one day that person can punch you in the face, come back later, apologize, and strike you again, and do it all over again. Seven times in one day. The idea is, infinitely, we are to forgive. We teach that sin is what we can expect most. This is important. It's so important to teach your kids accurately about the world in which you live. What should you expect when you walk outside your house? What's abounding out there? What's going on? Sin, right? So what should you expect in life? You should expect sin. You know, it's, just, it's this wild thing to actually have someone offer to you grace. You should expect grace least, except from believers. And whenever we get grace, we need to understand the huge blessing that God just gave us to be able to sit and dwell in his grace with his people. The fourth thing that we want to teach as biblical parents is biblical communication. And to achieve God-honoring communication in our homes, 
we need to keep biblical thoughts at the forefront of our children. Thoughts like Ephesians 4.29. You must let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for the building up of the one in need, that it would give grace to those who hear. And we need to keep Proverbs 15.2 in their mind. The, the tongue of the wise treats knowledge correctly, but the mouth of the fool spouts out folly. And you know James 1.19 well. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Parents need to repeat these to their children continually. Does anybody see an opportunity to use those every day with a child? <laughs> okay, so what does it say if we're not using those verses with our children? I mean, that's, that's got to be on a flashcard, right? You've got, a, you've got a, a quick deck of 20 flashcards, and you just cycle through them and keep showing the next one and the next one because it comes up so regularly. And these are the words of life. And you want them to read their Bible and trust their Bible later. So how important is it then to take these things and serve them up now? You know, if they fail in these... Parents should have the expectation that the message can go in and that the child can live up to it. And when they fail, that's when parents offer and bring to the child the, the process of peace and, and pull them through confession, repentance, forgiveness. Even parents can choose to do this when they fail to, to bring these areas. But there's the highlight of a biblical communication would be two areas. There's two areas that jump out of these verses that really should strike us. And the one is listening and the other is speaking. Listening. Listening challenges us with our self-control, our patience, and our kindness. And failure to listen amounts to disrespect. Biblical parents will train their children to listen well. Their, their desire is to have children whose ear is, is quick to respond to their voice like, a, like sheep to a shepherd. That they would heed the words of life that are coming from mom and dad or for any, from any adult for that matter, particularly as we talked about earlier today, the children's ministry and turning your child over. We, we would want the, the child turned over to have an ear that's quick to listen to the person that's been given authority over them. And next, after teaching them to listen well, we need to teach them to speak. Can your child have an edifying discussion with another child? How about another adult? Do they select what they talk about wisely? Do they respond to adults when they are spoken to, or do they cower and not speak back and not offer an answer? Basic skills in speaking are necessary, not only for your joy in home, but also for your, your child's interaction with the world. You know, and failure in this area, in, in communicating to your children, listening and speaking is ugly. What it'll look like if you fail to get biblical communication into your children, it'll look like this. Lying, harsh, sharp words, boasting, tattling, meddling, gossip, grumbling, arguing, bad jokes, and whining. All those things will come out of children that don't have biblical communication. We want kids to engage with other kids and adults appropriately. And we want them to offer something meaningful, something of value to the conversation. So kids must learn to be appropriate, considerate, Timely, respectful, they must know when to speak and even how long to speak. What is most convicting is that the speech patterns they develop are very indicative of the tone at home of our speech patterns. As parents, we rub off on our kids and they keep our flaws. They keep some of the good stuff too, but man, the ones that hurt are the ones that they keep our flaws. We must teach them to listen well and speak well. We must choose to model it for them. Point five in what parents teach kids is to love and serve others. To love and serve. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5 say this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's the attitude? The attitude of humility. Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Christ is the example, and he says, Love your neighbor 
and your enemy. And your enemy. We have it plainly. We are made to be servants. Biblical parents show their kids that we are to honor Christ by being servants, those made to serve. They'll have desires to serve. They do. They have desires to serve. Who? (laughs) That's exactly right. They have desires to serve themselves. And we can help them with that because point number six is we need to help them in dealing with desires, expectations, and disappointments. So we teach them to love and serve, point five, but point six, we need to teach them to deal with desires, expectations, and disappointments because at the end of the day, as I previously said, they're little kingdom makers, and they will be, except that you show them the righteous standard of God. They have expectations, but you know what's funny about these expectations of kids and adults? Our expectations run up against the sovereignty of God, <laughs> and we don't get what we want. And that sets off our kids, right? It sets them right off. It makes them angry, gets them upset, frustrated, and they miss the simple truth of life from Proverbs 15:16, which says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. They missed the idea that all we, all we ever needed was just a little nugget, just a little tiny morsel, and the fear of the Lord. And if we have those, that's all we need, as opposed to grabbing the whole banquet feast and the turmoil that comes with it. That, that with God and the fear of God is the best and the safest and the greatest place for us. It's this, it's this paradox that won't ever let you go. It's the idea that you'll never have more freedom than when you're a total slave of Christ. Isn't, isn't that the beauty? You'll never have more freedom than when you're a total slave of Christ. But they miss this, and they have desires and expectations and disappointments, and it gets them caught. So you need to help them realize what is ruling them. Is what's, is what's ruling your children, is it sin or is it the promises of God? When sin is ruling them, they, they are willing to sin in order to get whatever they want. When sin is ruling them, they're willing to sin in order to get what they want. That includes lying, yelling, screaming, acting out, hitting. When they get upset because they don't get their way and when their attitude is driven by the stuff of life, and you've seen this before, you know it all too well. Uh, you've seen it at the grocery store. When, when uh, the child's in the checkout line with mom and has got to have a candy bar and a soda or can't leave the store, it's going to be a total fit. Where else have you seen children deal poorly with unmet expectations? Anybody have an example of a child who dealt poorly with unmet expectations? Seen it lately? They start screaming. Yeah. My three-year-old just starts screaming. Yeah. Yeah, you can see it at Christmas morning. might happen. And they explode because the Cabbage Patch Kid had the wrong color hair. Whoopsie. There's all kinds of examples in our life, aren't there? When, when they're screaming, when they're flailing, when they're hitting and kicking, what that's saying is, I want my way. God has failed me. I'm not satisfied. And effectively, they're saying, I'm the king here. I'm the boss here. Everybody needs to get me what I want. Or you're all going to be unhappy because this is my kingdom. And all the screaming is over stuff that is going to burn up anyway. It's all temporal things. None of the screaming, oddly enough, has anything to do with God's righteous standard having been violated, which is a really sad thing. Rather, it's over stuff, material things, things that don't last. Their response is so clear, it's an indication of what's going on in their hearts who they serve, that they serve self. And we must show them these failures. And biblical parenting will point this out for them as they pursue God and his righteousness. And from disappointments, they're going to need to understand how to handle trials. I'm going to wrap these things up really quick here on these last four points. They need to understand how to handle trials. And the question here is, do you really believe in Romans 8.28? If you're going to handle trials, do you really believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him? You need to teach children that point. Stay with God's sovereignty. Stay with the one who is the maker of all things, knowing exactly what he's doing in your life. And you can handle trials because he's going to point you to trials being used for his glory, like everything else, right? Point number eight is that 
if we understand a God who's sovereign and he, he can hang with us in trials and he can lead us the way in trials, then point number eight, it's real easy to start talking with kids about stewardship. Stewardship and using the things that God's given to us well. What are the things that he's given to us? Three things. He's given us time, he's given us our body, and he's given us the blessings that attend our life. Time, body, blessings that attend our life. Those three things he's given to us, and we must respond to him in such a way that he gets glory from us in all three of those areas. We must be good stewards of those things and teach that to our kids, to steward those three areas. Last two things are, if we're going to steward those areas well, particularly our body and our time, you might call that a work ethic. That's point nine. We need to teach kids a good work ethic, a God-honoring work ethic. A work ethic that says, I don't work for you, I work for God. Finally, if you're going to do all this, if you're going to teach them all these things and work so hard, showing them the gravity, the weight of who God is, then you need to teach them carefully and have them consider who and when they will covenantly unite their life with to another person for the rest of their lives. You need to teach your kids about marriage, the principles of marriage. This is, this is the last piece of the puzzle before they're out of our roof, but don't leave this for last. Don't leave this for last. Pick away at the, this discussion over the course of their lives. They need help with this, and they need to know that you're a trusted confidant that they can rely on at that time when it comes time to make that type of massive decision. And the only way that you get to be a confidant in, in that time is if you've been trustworthy and faithful, teaching them truth all the way along. And not your own truth, the truth that comes from Scripture. So these are the things that we teach them. So we covered how parents teach and ten things of what parents teach. I hope this has been an edifying time for you to just consider the parent as the teacher. It sure has been great for me to look over these things because as I realized at Shepherd's Conference that the call of the minister, the call of the pastor, is to be able to set God's standard before you, even in the face of not living up to these things myself. That's hurtful. That's really hurtful. But it's also great, isn't it? Because it causes internal reflection and it gives us an opportunity to confess, repent, ask forgiveness, and restore and make things right and set a new course so every day can be a new course. So hopefully this has been edifying to you and will help in the way of understanding what the expectations are from biblical parenting and biblical counseling. So let me pray for us. Father God, we're so thankful for this time that you've given to us. It is a blessing to us to know your word, your truth, and to be able to share it with one another. I pray that these things would sit well in our hearts and that we will be teachers of children in whatever capacity that we have in life. And Lord, where there have been mistakes and failures, we know that the blood of Christ washes and cleanses all things and that there's forgiveness and there's restoration immediately ahead if we only confess and repent. Lord, all these things to your praise, to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.